You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. I invite you this afternoon to turn with me to the Gospel according to John, John chapter 15. And let's read together the first 17 verses of this chapter. The speaker here, of course, is our Lord Jesus Christ. John 15 is is about halfway through what is commonly referred to as the farewell address of our Lord. So let us hear God's word beginning at verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me, and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. This is my to my father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Indeed, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. This is my command. Love each other. This afternoon, we will give our attention to God's word as found in Ecclesiastes chapter one. Let us read together the first 11 verses. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What does man gain from all his labor at which he toils under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear is full of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. 
Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new? It was here already long ago. It was here before our time. There is no remembrance of men of old, and even those who are yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow. Brothers and sisters, congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, with summer now upon us, people start looking for opportunities to spend time on the beaches, spending time on the warm sands of White Rock or Crescent Beach or Birch Bay or some other place of your choosing is a grand way indeed to fill a warm summer day. And children especially like going to the beaches. One of the things boys and girls love to do on the beach is to build sandcastles. All you need is a bucket, a shovel, and before long, you can build a beautiful, elaborate sandcastle. And as you walk along the beach, for example, in White Rock, when the tide is low, you can see any number of these structures with their towers, their walls, their moats, their gates. And it really is a lot of fun to build a sandcastle. And yet at the end of the day, when the tide turns and the waves come back, boys and girls, what happens to that sandcastle that you took so long to build with your brothers and sisters or your friends or your dad or your mom? Well, you know what happens to it. It gets absolutely destroyed by the waves. And at the end of it all, you have nothing left to show for all those long, fun hours of building a sandcastle. Sandcastles never last. And when children realize that for the first time, sometimes it can make them cry. However, this afternoon, in the light of what we've read, we can ask ourselves, not just as children and young people, but also as adults, isn't really our daily work also much like building sandcastles? Every day we're very busy. We have all kinds of projects and no end of things on our to-do list. But in the end, what does it really all amount to? What lasting result can you discern from all the labors of your of your hands and of your mind? After a lifetime of working, what do we have to show for all the efforts that we have put our energy into? Well, this afternoon in Ecclesiastes chapter one and verses one through eleven, the Lord our God teaches us indeed congregation that Apart from his grace and blessing in Jesus Christ, our daily work indeed amounts to no more than building sandcastles. And so I may bring the word of God to you this afternoon with a theme. Apart from God and his grace, we gain nothing from our toil. And we will see that this is true, first of all, because everything is vapor. And secondly, because nothing is new. And thirdly, because in due time, everything is forgotten. And so apart from God, we gain nothing from our toil. And this is true in the first place because everything is vapor. Well, our text in the NIF translation says in verse 2, meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. And you probably remember how in older translations it would say something like, Vanity, vanity, all is vanity, vanity of vanities, everything is vanity. 
Now, if we take a closer look at the word that is translated in these ways with vanity or meaninglessness, it's interesting to note that the original Hebrew word actually simply means something like breath or vapor or a puff of air. And if you want to catch the nuance of what the author of Ecclesiastes is getting at here, just remember what it's like when you go out on a, on a cold winter day as frost and you breathe out and you see your breath. But you don't see it for very long. You breathe it out, it's there for a second, and then it's gone. And you can't get your hand around it. It's elusive. It's transient and it's elusive. And that's really the image that the preacher wants you to keep in mind as you read through this opening section and as you continue to read through the whole book. Because as you know, throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, there is that that ongoing usage of the term vanity or meaninglessness. And every time you encounter it, just remember that back of that translation is this concept of, of a breath or a puff of smoke. And here in chapter 1, the preacher is saying that human life and all the accomplishments of a human life amount to no more than a breath, a puff of smoke. You slave away all your life, but in the end, it seems as though you haven't accomplished anything of lasting value. And so what the preacher wants us to take away from his reflections here in, in the opening section is that we as human beings can't hold on to what we have achieved. Just like the tide comes and the waves and the wind to, to ruin a sandcastle in which you may have spent half a day of, of your time, so says the preacher, time marches on and time takes away everything You've tried to accomplish everything that you worked on, everything that you were sure was so very important. After some time, it just becomes really obvious that nothing in which you've invested your time and energy actually lasts. And in our daily lives, we're quite familiar with that experience. For example, when you clean the house, let's say your housekeeping day is Friday or something like that, Well, by the next Friday, well, there's all the dirt again. There's all the dust again. And you can bring out the vacuum cleaner once more and the mop and your your dusting cloths and start from scratch again. Same with your gardens. Maybe many of you spent Saturday in your gardens because it was such a lovely, warm day of summer. And you weeded and you hoed and you cut and you trimmed. Well, come back in a week, come back in two weeks, and guess what? You you will find thousands of weeds ready to be knocked down again. Or if you're a road road maker, a road designer, you design a road and you bring in the gravel for the roadbed and finally it's paved and, well, come back in five or six years, the potholes will be there. Nothing less. Paint your house. Maybe some of you are doing that this summer, taking the opportunity to paint the trim or the siding. Well, it all looks wonderful, looks splendid, but... As soon as you've got the job done, the decay and breaking down of the paint begins, and in a few years, you can start all over again. And even when you think about more substantial items in your life, for example, if you buy a new car straight from the lot, well, it's a pretty depressing thought that in 20 or 25 years, it'll either be in the wrecking yard, it will be recycled into Metal to be used for something else or else it will have a license plate that says vintage car and you'll be in a special class of people who own such an old car. 
nothing less. And so even though we're all such busy people, always in the go, going to school, becoming apprentices, starting a business, going to college, saving our money, investing, dreaming dreams, pursuing them with diligence, with all our heart. The end of the days, says the preacher, it's no more than a breath. It's elusive. You can't really get your hand on it anymore. It's just, it's like it's disappeared and it's transient. And even in the natural world, which other authors of the Bible find refreshing and stimulating, for this author in this state state of his mind as he's observing things, the natural world does not refresh him. The natural world rather oppresses him. In verse 4, he talks about generations coming and generations going. He's probably thinking about people, but not exclusively about people. He's thinking about generations of sheep and goats and cattle of all kinds and of any number of living creatures. Generations come of people and animals, but the earth remains forever. And the nuance here of his thought seems to be this, that all those generations of humans that have come and gone, all those generations of Animals and birds and fish that have come and gone again, they haven't really had any impact at all. The earth is untouched by all of them. It's like the earth just shrugs them all off and it's as though they never even existed. And then in verse 5, the author points us to the sun. Some biblical authors find the daily cycle of the sun very inspiring and very refreshing and encouraging. For example, Psalm 19 talks about the sun coming forth from its chamber like a bridegroom from his room and running its course with joy. But here, the author of Ecclesiastes looks at the same old pattern of each day, sunrise, sunset. And his conclusion is that it doesn't really amount to anything. A million sunrises, a million sunsets. What's really any different on planet Earth? What is being accomplished by all those endless cycles of the sun? And then in verse 6, he talks about the wind and finds it just as oppressive as the sun and the generations coming and going. Now there's a northeasterly wind. Sooner or later, that changes to a southwesterly and then it becomes a westerly or perhaps an easterly. Every day we hear the weather report. We hear about the temperature predictions and the wind predictions. It all changes a little bit every day, and yet in the end, nothing changes at all. All that blowing of the wind, endlessly repeated, accomplishes absolutely nothing, says the preacher. And finally, verse 7, he talks about the water cycles on our planet, about how streams and rivers keep emptying themselves into the ocean, and yet the ocean is never full. And again, the thought is all that flowing of water, all that busy activity of the water really seems to bring, in the end of the day, no change. It brings no progress. And so as a preacher looks at the natural world as he considers life in its totality, he has the same kind of feeling you might have if you have a hamster and watch the hamster on its hamster wheel just running and running Running, I've watched the hamster do that for 20 minutes. Running and getting absolutely nowhere and seemingly unaware that he was getting nowhere. Just endless movement, endless repetition without actually accomplishing a thing. That's what the natural world is like, says the preacher here. 
And that's what your daily work is like, he says. You gain nothing from your toil. It is all elusive. It is all transient. Well, maybe you're feeling a bit oppressed by all of that. Well, if you're not feeling oppressed, then you have a robust constitution and it takes a lot to get you down. But perhaps verses 9 and 10 will do the job for you then. That takes us to our second point. Here the scripture speaks about how we gain nothing from our toil because nothing is new. Nothing is new in your, in your daily life. According to the preacher, you've never seen something that was truly new. Something that had never been seen before. Even though in our time we, we like to talk a lot about the progress of the human race, and certainly there has been a great deal of progress on the surface of things, indeed we, we could argue that as never before in our time, life has been changing very rapidly. Changes in culture, changes in technology mean that we are living in a world today that our grandparents would hardly even recognize. We have so many things that appear to be completely new. We have computers. Everybody takes them for granted. When I began my ministry, I'd never heard of a personal computer. We have smartphones. We have big screen televisions. We have air travel. We have MRI machines. We have Hubble telescope in in outer space. We have electron microscopes. We have a humanly devised vehicle that is currently riding around on the planet Mars. We have the International Space Station and we have particle accelerators. You might say God has given the human race amazing progress. And contrary to what the preacher says, you might be inclined to say, look, you know, every day there's something new. Every day there's some new discovery. Every day some new application. Every day a scientific journal is published with any number of interesting new discoveries. Every day there's a new medicine, a new drug. And yet I'm pretty sure that even if he lived in 2013, the author of this part of Scripture would continue to maintain his position that there is nothing new under the sun. That despite all the centuries of cultural and technological progress, human beings have nothing substantially new to show for it. And what the preacher would mean by that is we're still the same old people. We're the same old humans. We've got the same issues, the same problems. They seem as intractable as ever. The same kind of problems that they were dealing with in the day of Solomon. Personal problems, relational problems, political problems, health issues. Well, guess what? They're all there still. We're still dealing with them. We haven't gotten away from that at all. There hasn't been that that one big new thing that would change life for all of the people of the world. Nothing we've ever discovered, no element of human progress can undo the fact that we are mere breath, just a puff of smoke. And that our work, all things considered, really too is no more than just a bit of vapor As the saying goes, the more things change, the more they stay the same. 
Apart from the grace of God, that is truly what life is like. There's nothing new. It's the same old, same old, endless repetition without any lasting effects. Think about it. You can work hard all of your life. You can be very industrious, very committed, very diligent. But apart from the grace of God in your life, you have gained nothing new. You have gained nothing lasting, nothing that will stand the test of time. Well, are you still not depressed, congregation? If you're not feeling a little bit downcast through this beginning to the book of Ecclesiastes, you must indeed be resilient people. But consider now verse 11. Here the preacher says, There is no remembrance of men of old, and even those who are yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow. And so the preacher dwells on the fact here that human beings and human accomplishments are rather quickly forgotten. And I don't want to rub it in too much this afternoon. It's a dark vision of life here. But it's true. It's true. You are going to be forgotten. Here's the proof. I would wager wager a guess that very few of you know even the personal names of your great-grandparents. How many of you could say, yeah, I know the name of my great-great-grandmother and my great-grandfather and I know where they lived and I know a little bit about their lives. I know what they did for work. I know what they liked and disliked. The simple fact is that the great majority of your grandparents and your great-grandparents have long been forgotten and you can't say much about their lives at all. Everything for which they labored Think about that. They were men and they were women and they were busy and they were active and they had they had ideas and they had passions. They had interests and dislikes. They led intense, busy, active lives. And yet you don't know the first thing about them. And if you don't know the first thing about them as great grandchildren, why you can be pretty sure that no one else does either. And that's true for the whole world. There are famous people who get remembered for a while. But of all the billions of people living on our planet today, and I don't even know how many billions there are, I think seven billion or so. Seven billion people living on planet Earth today. Seven billion lives. Seven billion people getting out of bed in the morning. Seven billion people keeping themselves active. Seven billion people pursuing their dreams. And yet in about a hundred years, maybe a handful of them will be remembered by anyone. And all their struggles and their accomplishments, they will just be part of that great forgotten mass of history. And so the question becomes then for us as hearers of this Bible passage this afternoon, if we and our work will soon be forgotten, then what is the value of it all? What does it really get a person? And the answer of the preacher is nothing at all. If you go back to his opening question in verse 3, what does man gain from all his labor at which he toils under the sun? That is the preoccupying question of this whole book. That is the one question that, that this author is, you might say, obsessed with. He keeps coming back to it over and over. What does a human being gain? 
from all his labor at which he toils under the sun? And the answer of this author is, you gain nothing. It's just all vapor. It's a breath. There's nothing new and everything is soon forgotten. Okay, so having seen then this rather oppressive vision of the preacher in the first 11 verses of his book, you want to know the answer to the question now. So where's the gospel in all of this? Where's the faith of the preacher? Does this man not believe? Does he not know God? To understand, we have to pay attention to several words that occur in our passage. These words occur in verse 3 and again in verse 9 and repeatedly throughout this book. And those are the words under the sun. Under the sun. The preacher is observing life here and he's reflecting about life under the sun. And that means from the perspective of human experience, he's looking at life from the perspective of merely human wisdom. If you look at life apart from the grace of God, apart from the covenantal reality of communion with God, what does it look like? Well, this is what it looks like. It looks like a breath. It looks like no more than a vapor. Thinking about what life is like under the sun is what he's doing in this book called Ecclesiastes. And life under the sun, brothers and sisters, is meant to be understood in contrast to life above the sun. In biblical symbolism, we live under the sun and the Lord God and his throne are above the sun. The eternal creator and God who has the whole world in his hands, he is above the heavens, he's above the earth, he's above the sun. That's the biblical symbolism that you have to understand to make sense out of Ecclesiastes. And we know that the God who sits above the sun is none other than our Father in Jesus Christ. And you can be sure, congregation, that this loving Father, this God of grace and mercy and compassion, does not call you to spend your whole life on a treadmill going nowhere. Instead, the God of all grace, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who sits on His throne above the heavens, above the sun, says in His Word repeatedly that your work, your life, your efforts, your pursuit of your dreams, the energy you expend in day-to-day existence is not at all for nothing. It has meaning. And it has lasting value. Yes, apart from Jesus Christ, apart from personal faith in Him, apart from being connected to Him and communion with Him through the Holy Spirit, it is a simple fact that life is a vapor. And if you are a truly secular man, a truly secular woman, then the preacher would say, you need to be honest about this. There's nothing transcendent for you. There's nothing that would somehow redeem your your life's projects from the curse of futility, the only way in which you can escape that curse of futility is through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because otherwise, otherwise you truly are doing no more than building sandcastles in the air. But when we live by faith in the promises of the gospel, 
then we should never say as God's children that we are a mere breath. You know, sometimes we do say that, don't we? We say life is a breath. But that's not really true for someone who has seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and has come to faith in that Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Yes, we know our temporal life is short and fleeting. But by faith, by faith in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, we may have the assurance, people of God, of nothing less than eternal life. Indeed, many parts of the New Testament will tell you that by faith in the Son of God, you may already now, in this age, taste something of the good things that are coming to you. For example, think of Hebrews chapter 6. The author says, we have tasted the powers of the age to come. And when you have tasted the powers of the age to come through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you're never going to say without any further qualification that life is meaningless. And you're never going to say that life is futile and, and nothing but a vain dream. No, you may drink deeply already now of the waters of life. The waters of life, the waters of grace which flow through the gospel in Jesus Christ to you. You may share by faith in the eternal life of the Son of God. And if you are sharing by faith in the eternal life of the Son of God, then you will never say, life is just a breath. Life is futile. And so what the preacher is really doing in a roundabout way in verses 1 through 11 by painting a bleak vision of life without the grace of God, is encouraging us to renew our commitment to the God of all grace. He wants you to know what life is really like apart from that grace. Look at it. Be realistic. Don't, don't delude yourself with nice stories, but look at it honestly. What does life really look like apart from the grace of God and Jesus Christ, which you have heard proclaimed in the gospel, and which you see displayed in the sacraments. So by way of contrast, the preacher is saying, hold on to your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because you see, if you do hold on to your Savior, Jesus Christ, then the Word of God declares to you very pointedly and repeatedly that your life is not in vain. For example, in verse 58 of 1 Corinthians 15. And this is after a long discourse of the Apostle Paul, his most elaborate and sustained discourse about the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And then in light of that discourse about resurrection, in verse 58, the Apostle says, Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And you should not make the mistake of thinking here that the apostle is only talking about what we would say is gospel work. He's not just talking about preaching the gospel and witnessing to Christ, that that kind of work will, will not be in vain. Now, Paul is talking here about the sum total of your entire life. He's talking about who you are as a person with your talents and gifts, your interests, your passions, your dreams, the endeavors that you follow, the energy you expend. Paul wants you to know 
that in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, this, this sum total of your life's projects is never in vain, but on the contrary, will bear fruit. And that's why we read this afternoon also from John chapter 15. This is the famous, I am the vine saying of the Lord Jesus Christ. And one of the important things that, that comes out of that chapter is that as we abide in the Lord Jesus Christ through faith, then our lives bear fruit. And once again, I would caution you against thinking that the fruit in question there is merely the fruit, say, of, of evangelism or the fruit of what we specifically think of as a church activity or a Christian kind of activity. Just as in 1 Corinthians 15, so in John chapter 15, the Word of God is thinking about the totality of your life's work. It's thinking about who you are, about the project of your whole existence. It will not be in vain. The things you do in faith as a mother in your home, as a researcher in the lab, as a businessman, as a student pursuing a degree in in the arts, whatever it is that you're doing, whatever your task, whatever your calling in life is, as you pursue it in faith, faith in the resurrected Son of God, then says Scripture, the work of your life will not be without enduring effects. And that may be hard for you to visualize, but that's not that's not necessary for you to do. You don't have to figure out exactly how God will ensure that your life's project will have repercussions for all eternity. Maybe that seems incredible. How could your life possibly have repercussions? How could your just your normal job have repercussions for all eternity? Maybe you can't figure that out. Maybe you can't see how it will all fit together in the end. But God says, trust me, I am God. I sit on my throne. I am above the earth. I am the one who has transcendent wisdom and knowledge and power. And I will see to it that everything you did in faith, from the least of you to the greatest, everything, your life's work, your life's project, will not be forgotten. It will not become a breath. It will not fade away. But it will be given an eternal fruit. Now, how beautiful is that? Your life will have eternal fruit. It's not just a flash in the night. It's not something that will be forgotten for all eternity. It will not be in vain. Whatever you do, and let me underscore it again, whatever you do, also going on holidays, having a break from school, and going back to school in the fall, going back to your job, Whatever you do, it will not be in vain. There will be permanent, there will be eternal consequences. And I can say with confidence, with the authority of the Word of God, that millions of years into eternity, you will still be seeing the ongoing fruit of the works of faith that you did. Not just the spiritual works of faith, but the entire life's work of faith that you engaged in you will still be seeing the ongoing effects, the eternal repercussions and reverberations to the glory of God. And so even though your grandchildren may well forget your name, even if you have a a long family genealogy and you keep careful track of those things, grandchildren probably will forget your name and your life. The fact is, God never will. 
God never will forget. And one day, one day the whole church of God from every generation will live and will worship and will work together. No one will be forgotten. Everyone will be remembered. Everyone will be loved. Everyone will be cherished for all eternity. And their work will be established. That is the future for all who put their faith in the resurrected Son of God. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.